The following is brought to you by the Starfleet Podcast Network, SPN The Spin. Hey, this is Dag, and you're listening to Beyond Trek Podcast. You know, I, we were on vacation for a couple of weeks, and then we got back, and my computer just won't be a computer. It's just slow, and um, mm-hmm. and some things it's just refusing to do. Sometimes if the computer doesn't work like it's supposed to, just do concussive maintenance. Kick it, hit it, fire a phaser at it. I have found that sometimes that works. You never know. Wanted to do a couple quick introductions. So my name is Big J with Beyond Trek Podcast. And today acting as a co-host is our friend Boris, who comes from another podcast that's part of a network that Beyond Trek is, is a part of. And today our special guest is New York New York Times bestselling author Michael Jan Friedman. So thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with us to talk. And want to the the amount the number of books you have written, we couldn't sit here and name all of them. I mean, we could, but there are so many. And there's a Wikipedia page, by the way. Just, yes, if anybody wants to look them up, Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, I was looking through here to see, okay, which ones have you written that I've read? Uh, books like Kalis, Reunion, Oblivion. Uh, another Kalis one, uh, Shadows on the Sun, another Star Trek book. Um, I know for sure I read Reunion. Some of these other ones look familiar, but I, I just don't recall. Uh, crossover novel with uh, the original series and Next Gen. Uh, so, really, you could scroll a, through here. There's an X-Men too, right? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a couple book? X-Men crossovers in there. So, that's the first thing I want to ask about because I'm interested <laughs> about the X-Men crossover especially when once we and this was before was this before x-men because you know patrick stewart was professor x and of course captain picard and if this book had this crossover had been done after that would have been kind of a strange explanation there but can you tell me a little bit more about the x-men and star trek crossover yeah it was actually done and first of all thank you for for having me um, it was done, uh, prior to the, uh, to the, to, uh, Patrick Stewart's appearance in the X-Men movie. What happened is, um, um, Marvel had the Star Trek license to do Star Trek comics at the time. And, um, um, the, that relationship, um, gave birth to the question, well, why don't we do a Star Trek X-Men crossover? And um, it was actually the second the second X-Men Star Trek crossover in the comics. But they said, mm-hmm. okay, so now we're doing it in the comics. Hey, why don't we continue it in the form of a book? And um, that wasn't really quite within the purview of the license, but, but because there was a relationship already, they um, – uh, they were able to do it. And uh, John Ordover, who was the editor at the time of the Star Trek publishing program, uh, asked me if I wanted to do uh, a book. And he said, but he goes, but you have to call it Planet X. <laughs> and I said, sure, that's, I'll a take great, that deal. that's a great idea. So, uh, so, that's, so that's what we did. 
And um, it was it was about the most fun you could have as a as a as a writer, uh, you know, um, devising scenes in the hologram between the whole uh, in the holodeck between Worf and Wolverine talking about um, uh, talking about um, uh, Nightcrawler and Jordy. Uh, the two of them are talking about teleportation and and so on um it was uh it, it was just a ton of fun and um and i even was able to slip in uh, uh, a subtle little uh, little scene that i'm proud of you know you have archangel running around the enterprise flying around the enterprise and uh, and and alarming people as he goes by and um in in a Origin in a uh, next generation episode called the Outrageous Akona, um, we met uh, Terry Hatcher. She played a transporter operator named B. G. Robinson, if if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so I thought, hey, Terry Hatcher, why don't I why don't I put her character B. G. Robinson in the book? And so she. She, you know, of course, she plays, you know, Lois Lane in in uh, in the TV series. So yep. she's standing there in one of the corridors as Archangel goes zooming by, and she says, "I can't believe a man can fly." <laughs> So of all this technology, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, of all the technology in the 24th century, that's where you're hung up. Is- <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But but here's here's Lois Lane. Saying, yeah. Can't yeah, the Superman and Lois, the new adventures yeah. of something. Yeah, that was uh, that's from the 90s. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely yeah. remember the show you're talking uh, about. Was the inspiration because my inspiration for X Men was the animated series, which was fairly true to the comics. Was that the inspiration for your characters in your in your book, Lois and Clark: The New oh, Adventures no, of Superman? I, I, Sorry, I actually bought X Men One off the newsstand, so that was like I don't know, like a hundred and some odd years ago. I think. <laughs> and and uh, you got the first one. In wow. fact, in fact, what I think I what I think happened is I had a tooth like a uh, wisdom tooth pulled and uh, and oh. my father brought me to uh, to a store down the block from the dentist and said here go ahead go buy a comic and my parents were very um very supportive when it came came to my buying comics reading comics and um uh so i bought x-men one i said what x-men what's this mm-hmm. and uh and uh, and i i so i my x-men um, as uh, as you'd see in uh, in my pure X Men novel, uh, Shadows of the Past, my X Men are the original five. So that was kind yeah. of my inspiration. Even though the the the, the cast of X Men in um, in Planet X was uh, was not the original five, that's how I entered the um, uh, okay. the, the X Men mythos. Yeah, so no Jubilee, huh? <laughs> no Jubilee. What about Gambit? Uh, no, Gambit wasn't part of the original five. Yeah, but no, no, he definitely wasn't. But no. but and and I don't believe he's in this this book. 
you know, I remember Nightcrawler for sure. Um, and Wolverine. Cyclops, maybe. Cy- Cyclops in it? I, I don't, I'm not sure. I think maybe he was. Okay. You know, honestly, I, I, I think he was. Because I could see uh, Cyclops and Jordy talking together. They, they've each got the visor got the- <laughs> thing going on. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Here, here's the important question. Do you still have that issue? X-Men number one. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Unfortunately, it's not mint, but uh, I do. Have it. Uh, I also you, have Avengers one. Wow. Nice. Well, still, if it's, if it's not mint, it's still, you know, that could probably get you something at one of these comic book conventions. If, if, if I were inclined to sell it. Right. <laughs> so then my next question is, why Star Trek? Why did you decide that Star Trek was what you're going to write for? Well, or write about. Um, there, were, I guess there are two answers to that. One is I was always interested in Star Trek. Um, I like <laughs> a lot, like uh, like uh, um, X Men. I came in at the beginning. I was, I think, it was 11 years old when when Star Trek debuted on uh, on NBC. So I, I was bowled over by by that first episode, and you know I watched it every week. I for um, I watched every episode as it came out. I actually for a long time didn't watch any reruns because first of all I didn't have to. I'd seen it all already, uh-huh. and and also I have a I have a uh, an allergy against watching things for the second time for the most part (laughs) things i've watched more than once were either things i had to watch to get the details right in a book or or something that my kids liked so it's got to be really special to watch twice yeah yeah right for for pleasure um, not 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 just to be clear twice for pleasure not not for work right (laughs) right so so um but, you know, I, I'm sure there are movies I've watched 40 times because, you know, <laughs> my kids like them. But but uh, but I did, uh, you know, so I was I was a big, big fan of, of Star Trek when it came out. Um, the other answer is this. My first four books were for Warner, uh, Warner Publishing. And uh, they had a line called the new line uh, of science fiction and fantasy called Quest Star. And uh, I did four books for them. And then, you know, I, they did okay. Um, and then, uh, I was very happy with them, but you know, in terms of sales, they did okay. They were mid, what they call mid list. And, uh, at the end, uh, of those four books, I went into, uh, to talk to the editor who was no longer the editor that hired me originally in, in publishing terms, I was an orphan. Okay. And, you know, the, the new editor who replaced her had no allegiance to me. In particular, and editors love to bring in their own, their own, uh, we'll call them victims, and, uh, <laughs> fresh meat. Yeah, and, uh, rookies, and so freshmen. The guy who, who you know, was younger than I was at the time. You know, he said, "You know, Mike, it's been a good, it's been a good run, but, but I think, I think, you know, we're going to go in another direction." And I was like. 
what? What do you mean another direction? Whatever direction you want to go in, I'll go with you. It's okay. Right. But uh, but he, you know, he wasn't having it. And he said, you know, we're going to, we're going to go in another direction. So sayonara. So you got the old, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so I, so I walked out of there. I walked out of there and I said, is this it? Is this, this could be it. And, and, and by the way, you know, if you told me when I was back in college that I was going to write four books, I would have, I would have signed up for that. So, so I would have signed up for one. So the fact that he, you know, was giving me the boot after four books, I said, all right, well, if that's it, maybe that's it. And then a couple of days later, I, I got a call from my agent. And she said, have you ever thought about writing a Star Trek book? And I said, you know, I, I haven't, but I've enjoyed them. I'd, I'd re actually read a few of them uh, by uh, Howie Weinstein and Ann Crispin, and uh, who, who, um, who got into that before I did. And, um, and I said, uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, put words in the mouths of, of, of Kirk and Spock. Are you kidding? That'd be lots of fun. And it came at a fortuitous time because, you know, I, I just lost my gig at, at Warner. So, um, uh, so you so were looking for work. I, I'm sorry. I said, so you were looking for work because that was good I timing. Was, I was, well, although I wasn't actually looking, I was more like, I would say despondent. Okay. So, so uh, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten to the stage yet where I said, okay, now I have to look for something. So I, um, I, I prepared an outline and I gave it to Dave Stern, who was the, uh, editor of the publishing program at that time. And, um, and he called me back and after reading it and he said, Mike, this is exactly what we are not looking for. <laughs> this is this is a fantasy novel uh -huh. with starring Scotty and a bunch of Scottish myths. He, go, he goes, "That's we're we're science fiction." He goes, "I know, I know, it's kind of loose science fiction." You went with the Scotty book as your first one. Yeah, well, it was a, that was my proposal. So, okay, so, because uh, not what not what eventually came out because he told he said no. So he said, you know, give me, give me a good Star Trek science fiction story. So I went back and, and I've always been kind of interested in shining lights and dark corners, you know, tying up loose ends. And, uh, and I, and I watched, rewatched again, a rare thing for me. Uh, what are little girls made of? You know, the Android yeah. uh, episode. And I mm -hmm. said, wait a second, there could be another Kirk android lurking around here. Right. So, uh, so I, I came up with a story about, um, a Kirk android, uh, being created in that, in that cavernous lair and, uh, and taking over the enterprise from Kirk. And, uh, and I said, okay, so here's a good story. And I submitted it to Dave and Dave said, he goes, he goes, Mike, this is, this is great. This is terrific. He goes, but how does it end? And I said, oh, well, I didn't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> I've got so, the last page right here. You don't get it. He goes, Mike, he goes, I'm the me. editor. I'm the editor. I'm a professional. You can spoil it for me. 
So I gave him, uh, I gave him the ending. It had to do with Romulans and, and so on. And, and, uh, and he said, this is great. And, uh, let's go with this. And, uh, that, that became double, double, which was my first Star Trek book. Um, and then I finished that. And by then, uh, next generation, uh, had, had started to come out and, um, and Dave said, well, that was a great book. Let's, what are you going to do next? And I said, I think I'd like to do a next generation story. And so I did, uh, I did uh, a story called A Call to Darkness. And then, and then it, it went on from there. It's like, you know, it, it's sort of like, uh, like in The Princess Bride, you know, I, uh, you know, I, uh, I'll probably kill you in the morning. But, but, but in the meantime, here's another book. So I, I, I went, you know, through these one book contracts. I went through, I must have gone through 30 of them. Uh, and occasionally it was a trilogy or, or in one case, even six books. But for the most part, it was a series of one book contracts. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm curious about the, the process by which you come up with a Star Trek story. Um, as far as my limited knowledge of creativity goes, I'm not a very creative person. Normally, it's taking a, uh, an existing plot device from, you know, the the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. That was an original concept back then. And then twisting it in a, in a way that would uh, be a, better for more modern audiences, I'm assuming in the, in the, in the years or in the decade that you're writing. But how does it, what's the process like when you're trying to write for characters that have appeared through somebody else's work and you're trying to continue the legacy of those characters? Well, there are different ways to do it. One is, as I said, to shine a light on some aspect of, of their, uh, of what's been established about them. For instance, um, I did a four issue comic series called Shadow Heart about Worf's human brother, which ran into some problems because, because, uh, you know, we were getting to the end of the next generation, um, uh, run. And we'd mentioned Worf's human brother, but we hadn't actually seen him. So I said, okay, so this is fair game. And halfway through the process of writing it, what, what comes down the pike, a script about Worf's human brother, which was nothing <laughs> like what I had. So that was, that was a, a torturous, torturous process to kind of bring that yeah. in line. With you have to start all over then. Yeah. So you have to, you have to kind of work with canon, if you will. It's, yeah. the, the books have to follow canon and, yeah. but the canon is not beholden to the books. Right. So okay. basically what they, what they did and it sounds like they did is completely trash the book. I mean, did, did that just, <laughs> were you anywhere close to it or was it like a, okay, you guys just detonated my book. Now I have to do something else. Well, it was a, it was a comic series. It was a four issue comic series. So I had, I had outlined all four, all four, uh, um, comics. I had written the first one, plotted out the second one. Um, the first one was being penciled, was about to be inked. So we were down, you know, we'd already gone down that road, but not far enough where we could say, look, we, there's nothing we could do here. So we, we had to kind of rewrite what was going on, use as much of the, uh, um, uh, uh, finished artwork, finished pencils as we could to, you know, 
to avoid having to pay everybody twice. So um, it was torturous. But you know what? Here's a very important question. That's that's completely irrelevant. I was writing the Star Trek comic. Huh? I have a very important question that's completely irrelevant. Did Worf's brother in your novel have a Russian accent? (laughs) I... (laughs) Did he have a Russian accent? Well, the guy's I, name, I don't his name think, is Rozhenko, right? Yeah. I don't think, um, I don't think he did. Oh, I don't think okay. he did. I well, think he, we, he didn't I think I, I made him speak in such a way that it seemed perhaps that English was not his first language, but okay. I didn't make him speak with a Russian accent. But then again, the Klingons, there were tons of Klingons in those comics. They didn't speak with accents either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, well, anyway, it, but the point is, the yeah. point is that I um, that I like to, uh, to answer your question. Uh, the point is that I like to shine light on dark corners, uh, pick up threads that had been, you know, dropped. That was one thing. And the other thing that I did sometimes is I said, what's what's the last thing that this character wants to see in his life or her life? You know, what can we do to really, really find a wound and rub salt in it? That's another thing. So it's, it's, it's always, it's always driven by character initially. Um, but, uh, the way you get there is, is not always the same. Is it easier to write for comics than it is for, which I'm sure I'm probably know the obvious answer to that, but is it easier writing for comics than it is for uh, paperback novels? It's easier writing comics than novels. It's not necessarily easier writing comics than short stories. And I have written some Star Trek short stories because, you know, you're dealing with a, with a um, more finite uh, set of events and characters. And um, um, you, you, you know, I think I actually think the short story, which more or less corresponds to a comic, a single issue of the comic. I think that's actually the best, excuse me, the best um, format for science fiction is the short story because you get in, you you say, here's the scientific concept, here's the the um, ramifications of it, social, psychological, whatever they may be, and you get out. So uh, as much as I love writing novels and as much as I love reading novels, um, I actually think pound for pound, the short form is, 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 um, is better. You mean like specifically for Star Trek with kind of what you're trying to get out of that story, right? Well, I think for science or just in general, science fiction in general. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not not sure about literature in general, but I think certainly for (laughs) fiction. Yeah. I think it's hard to put Shakespeare in a, in a comic book. I could not imagine writing Shakespeare or a comic. You know, I was a teacher for 15 years. And one of the things I used to do is teach Macbeth in comic form. You taught Macbeth in comic form? That seems very (laughs) difficult. There was an occasion. This was back when the Star Trek Coda book series, which was going to be the the wrap up of what was in the current lit verse Star Trek. So we had interviews with Dayton Ward, David Mack and James Swallow. 
about that. And one of the things that they talked about that I wanted to get your take on is so the the books were were needed to follow the canon, but not the other way around. And there was what they said was there was kind of a also. I don't know if you want to use canon as as the right word, but the authors kind of tried to not completely do 180s of what other writers have have done. And was that was there like an initial early on kind of collaboration where, hey, I'm going to be doing I'm going to say that Uhura is from here and her parents' name were this and that. And another author doesn't just take it as, okay, well, I'm going to do completely different than what you are. I'm basically going to say that she was born in a whole different area, was adopted, didn't have a parent, whatever it was. Um, was it more of a cooperative trying to keep all of yourselves in a, a general sort of, we're not stepping on each other's toes, but you still have your own work that you're doing. You know what I mean? Um, I do know what you mean. Um, initially, when I, when I, when when there weren't as many Star Trek books, um, I think uh, we did do that. We we tried uh, we tried hard to not step on each other's toes, to not rewrite stories that others had written. Um, but as the as the publishing program went forward, things were rewritten. Um, and uh, it had to do to some extent with the editor. You know, the editor, you know, as I said before, writers can be orphans. And, and I think um, stories can be orphans, too. Um, and so there were, there were stories, stories of mine, stories of others that were rewritten um, uh, under the philosophy um, that uh, nothing should stand in the way of a good story. A philosophy, by the way, that I'm dead set against. Okay. To me, to me, everything has to fit together. You want to live in that world. You want it to be seamless. So, so um, if I'm if I'm contradicting something that you that you read earlier in the Star Trek publishing program, it's like pulling aside the curtain. Like, hey. It, I know this is not what you saw before, but let's try this on now. So I'm I'm not actually in favor of that, but the editors, uh, to some extent, were, and you know that was that was their philosophy that they wanted to do whatever they could to produce a, a good Star Trek story. Um, um, there was an instance, by the way, there was an instance where I mean, there's there's actually been a few little tidbits here and there where the publishing program actually did inform the screen products. Um, for instance, you know, in terms of tidbits, you know, the first names of Sulu and Uhura were originally, originally appeared in the books. I think I um, do recall that, that right? it started in the books. Yeah. The, the bigger um, exception would be in the Day of Honor series. Um, we in the publishing program came up with a concept. I say we, I had nothing to do with it. Um, the, <laughs> the concept of the day of honor, the Klingon day of honor. And I ended up writing two, two of the five books in that series, but I didn't develop it. Um, 
And, uh, and then, uh, when, uh, the Star Trek editor was talking, the Star Trek publishing editor was talking to Jerry Taylor at Voyager about what, what, you know, he was doing. She said, wait a second, day of honor. Tell me more about that. That's interesting. And so the day of honor concept actually started in the publishing program and wound up as an episode, um, uh, in in the Voyager series, which by the way we then novelized. Oh, so went okay. From publishing to screen to publishing, and is, is that the one that was directed by or the the screenplay was written by Ronald Moore at the uh, the the one where Bellana was yep. in uh, in you know in in the Klingon purgatory, if you will. Yes. She had so to rescue before, rescue so her before, mother, right? Yeah. 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 Well, she went to Grethor, which is... Oh, Grethor, Grethor. There you go. Yeah. Right. So, yes, that's the one. That's the one. That was a good episode, by the way. So, that episode was inspired by a book series yeah. you were involved in. So, yeah. and that's that has to be a pretty important accomplishment, at least, that, that you would see, would be to have something that is written that you uh, wrote or were involved in that gets picked up as we're, we're taking this and making it an official thing that started in the books. So it was, it was, I'm sure you're happy about that. I I didn't develop that, that book series, but, um, I also, I also co-wrote an episode of Voyager. So that was an even greater thrill. You'd say, you know, to, to, to become forever and ever some small part of the of of, of the Star Trek uh, screen product machine. Now there was one of our one of our other members in our in our network of Star Trek podcasts that wanted to join but was not able to, and she's an aspiring writer. So I, I want to ask the question that I'm sure that she had is. With someone that's aspiring to be a writer and be an author, is there is there that one good piece of advice or place to start to get to get that going? Like where where did you how how was your start and what would you recommend to anyone who says, hey, I want to be a writer, I want to write novels? Well, I I did everything ass backwards. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, it just worked out for me, but I, I, you know, um, you're supposed to, you're supposed to get an agent before you get, uh, uh, a gig and, you know, it would, it, 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 things, you know, you're not supposed to start out writing novels, you write short stories and then you develop a following. I didn't do that. Um, but, um, uh, but in terms of what I tell aspiring writers, the number one thing is finish what you start. What often happens is um, I hear people they come to me and say, look, I had this great idea and I got about 50 pages down the road and then, and it, you know, and then it petered out. I got writer's block and, and writer's block is not this mystical thing. There's always a reason for it. You know, it's, and, and it's, it's always a different reason. Um, uh, most often people get what they call writer's block because they haven't thought about what comes after that 50 pages. 
they had this great idea, this scene, this problem uh, for one of their characters, but they don't know how to resolve it, which is why when, when you're a young, uh, well, young or aspiring writer, you have to write an outline. You okay. can't write by the seat of your pants when you're inexperienced. Later on, maybe. But, uh, but initially, you need an outline. The outline has to take you to the end of the story. And then you write the entire story. Whether it's 50 pages or 300 pages, you finish it because you can't get any benefit from having written the beginning until you've gotten to the end. It's not uncommon, even when you have an outline, for you to get to the end and say, wait, um, hmm. I thought I was writing about this when in fact I was writing about that. And uh, I need to change the beginning. So you, you don't get, you don't get um, any mileage out of that until you, until you write the end. So always finish what you start. That's, that's one thing. Another thing that I tell aspiring writers is become an apprentice. And by that, I mean, you know, if, if in, in the old days, uh, you wanted to become a blacksmith, you would find a blacksmith and you would apprentice yourself to that person. And you would work for, for little or nothing, learning the, the, the tools of your trade. Um, and then, um, once you were good enough, you would, you would go out on your own. Um, we get this, the P word, drummed into us in, in, uh, as, as young students, the plagiarism word. Oh, Don't yeah. Plagiarize. Don't plagiarize. Find your own voice. And finding your voice could take decades, mm -hmm. you know. So, so what you do is you find an author that you admire and try to write a book in that author's voice and apprentice yourself in, in, in effect to that author. And then once you, once you master that, you will naturally find your own variation on that. But there's nothing wrong with, you know, I, I, I used to idolize uh, a science fiction writer named Roger Zelazny, a, uh, a Hugo Award winner and um, just a tremendous, tremendous poetic writer. And, um, and so the first three books I wrote were books he could have written, right? I, uh, I happened to write them, but he could have. And, uh, and they were professional and they published them. But, uh, um, but I was inspired by him and I wrote books that I thought his readers would enjoy. And that's, that's a good strategy. It's a good way to go. So I have two but, questions. Yeah. Shining, shining light in dark corners. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the answer you just gave me, the first question is what happens when, and again, I'm not a writer, so, but what happens when you have writer's block at your outline? You don't know, you like, you have a certain point, and then you just don't know how to end it. How do you deal with that? And then number two would be how has or how will do you think AI or Chad GPT or something similar? either assist or take over that kind of writing scheme that you're talking about, about writing somebody else's voice. Right. Okay. Well, um, in terms of what, what do you do in, in your outline, 
you're asking? What do you do in your outline if you just can't get to the next step? Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, you get to a to a, a, a certain point, you get to the middle of the story, everything's great, you got all sorts of characters and whatnot, and then you're just like, wait a minute, what happens from this point on? Like, I, it's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm okay. here. What happens? So you're on the outline right. and get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, good, yeah. It's a good question. So you have to, you have to understand that a story is about someone solving a problem. Right. Right. So, and, and it might be multiple problems. You might have one big problem and then some smaller problems. Your big problem is the green goblin and your smaller problems are, you know, how do I get the girl and what do I do with these powers? Right. So, so, um, uh, when you, what you do is you say, who's my character? What are my character's problems? And the way it works is you, is you work in three acts. Um, in the first act, you meet the characters and the conflict or the problem. And um, the character at the end of the first act, the char- your, your main character, um, comes up against the problem and is insufficient to solving it not equipped, not experienced enough, doesn't have the right ordinance, whatever it might be, character falls short of solving the problem. The second act is about the struggle and two things are happening. Um, in one, in, there are two threads that are, that are taking place in the second act. One is the, um, the, the stakes are getting higher and higher and time is getting shorter. Right. Like, uh oh, uh oh, things, actions rising. Uh oh, this is this is not looking good. But the other at the same time is the character is slowly getting equipped to handle that problem through his experiences, through things he acquires, through, you know, the magic sword that he found. He's getting so even though the stakes are getting higher, he's also getting better equipped to I I say he obviously could be anybody to 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 face that problem at the end of the second act you have you get into the climax here's the character facing the problem once again except this time the character is is in a position to emerge victorious and then you have a little denouement so that's it once you know and you can find this out by by looking at the rest of your outline once you know who the character is and what the problem is, you know what to do. You may not know exactly how the character is going to solve the problem, but you know, this is writing. You know, it's, it's, it's not supposed to be easy. Thank God we invented the whatever device. Right. So now the second part of your question. The typewriter? Hey, the keyboard? <laughs> whatever. The 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 uh, the second part of your question is in terms of AI. AI scares AI scares the crap out of me because I'm pretty sure that even though AI is very rudimentary now and very silly and very boilerplate, you know that the time will come when it's able to write. I think as well as pretty much anybody, um, and this is a big part of the uh, Writers Guild strike. Because in the last contract, which was in 2008, um, they didn't know anything about AI. It wasn't contemplated in the contract, nor were some other things like streaming. But, um, but, uh, 
AI. AI needs a template, right? So it can't, you can't just say, right, go write a great story. It's like, well, what do you mean? What's a great story? How do I know if, yeah. if it's great? Well, go write a story like this writer. And then you feed that a book from that writer in there, and it can write a story in that writer's voice, the kind of story that writer would write. And I'm sure at some point down the road, 10, 15 years, whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be a, a, a legitimately great book. So the question is, how do we, how, uh, well, there are a couple of questions. One is, how do we compensate that writer, either in terms of a book or in terms of a screenplay, for the fact that his work was used as a template, right? So the writer has to be compensated. Um, the other thing is, I think, just as bookstores survive, even though there are alternatives, um, I think uh, books written by human beings will always survive. I mean, you could take a picture of the Mona Lisa and put it in your living room, but it's not the same as having the real Mona Lisa. The real Mona Lisa was written by a human being. Was uh, painted by <laughs> we get it right, yeah. right. Well, painted by a human being yeah, and that's yeah. part of its value to you. So I think books written by human beings will always have a certain value that AI written books don't. But again, nonetheless, it scares the crap out of me. I've got yes. I've got a a question, and I apologize for not knowing this. I feel like I should in, in regard to the writer strike. But can you expand a little more on what what is it with the the AI part that is that is that piece of the, I didn't know that that was part of uh, the the reason behind the strike. Is that just it's, one of the things? Is like a major part of it? It's a major part. It's a major part. There are three things. One is we need a raise because the last contract was. Um, um, 15 years ago, you know, money's a dollar is not what it was back in 2008. So that's money. And that's always going to be part of a, of a, of a contract negotiation. I, I heard the billionaires were claiming that you guys are being unreasonable. So I'm, it, it isn't it nice when, yes. <laughs> isn't it nice when the billionaires tell you, tell the, the working class, Hey, work with us here. You guys are just being, you're being jerks. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, those companies couldn't survive without those billionaires, you know, like, right, I know. But anyway, <laughs> um, um, I have a feeling that those those guys would instead of 20 million dollars, I have a feeling they would take three. If that was their only alternative, I have a feeling they would take it. But anyway, neither here nor there. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so a raise. Second part is AI, because, again, back in 2008, there was no provision for um, how we would be compensated uh, when we're used as templates for AI generated works. So, and so going forward, that has to be that has to be a, a part of the contract. And the third part is streaming. You know the way it works. So I wrote this Star Trek episode, and initially you get paid initially for it um, for the first time it runs. And then when it reruns, because all the Star Trek episodes ran a second time, right? Um, uh, when it runs again, you get less, but you still get something. And then uh, when it runs a third time in uh, in um, 
uh, in Paris, then you get a, more money. And when it runs again in New Zealand, you get more money. And it's, it's less each time, but you're compensated for each broadcast. With streaming, it doesn't work that way. With streaming, I might on a you know Tuesday morning decide to access an episode of Strange New Worlds, and you might uh, access it three days later. And right, right? so everybody. How do you track that metric? There's no broadcast, and right. so there's no uh, so you can't count the number of broadcasts, and therefore the number of times you get paid. So there has to be a different, like you say, a different metric, more along the lines, I think, of what we see in the music industry, maybe. Um, every time something's accessed, it's counted, and and the, the uh, musician is uh, compensated poorly, very poorly, but nonetheless, <laughs> but nonetheless, the technology is there to track that kind of thing. But that's the third, the third part of, uh, of what needs to be resolved. I think it's like, imagine um, in Voyager, right? The the reason why Tom Paris exists, even though he's the same actor and not Nicholas Locarno is because Paramount didn't want to pay the the writer for the Locarno episode. Because every time Locarno would be used, he'd have to get compensated for every episode of Voyager, right? So right. It, it's the same principle. And then, yeah, the big thing is, what database is being used to source the material and how do you know you're part of that database of the work that's being used to source for AI to generate your work? So, you know, yeah, that's part of it where you're, you're trying to establish, okay, so if, if, if that's going to have to happen, which it's going to have to happen because how else is AI going to get information to, yeah. to process, right? So what database is to be established and who's part of that database and how you get compensated, even though you're in the database, but your work's not used. Although it could take it from, from your work and you may not know it because it could only take a line or two, you know? So it, that, right. That's, that's true. Really, yep. True. That's really a, a, a huge issue because then if, if the writer's not compensated, now you're going on, uh, uh, you know, copyright infringement, but no one will ever discover copyright infringement because it's so buried deep in the code of what, what you're using. And then people are going to make more money off your work and you're not going to get fairly compensated for it. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a huge mess. It yeah. sounds like it, th this, and I can tell you from my professional perspective on technology, this sounds like something that I, I, I couldn't even think of what would be a good solution to that because you're talking about those those metrics again of how how would I how would anyone be able to really know or to say that my book was used in this this AI template because you're right now you're starting to get into the database and the coding which is not easy that's not easy to do and when it comes to the streaming part you have to now implement a system where each time a particular episode like this episode is aired, you have to have some some tally mark for it. Honestly, to me, I can tell you that that's a nightmare. The the whole and I th this is probably why there's a strike and it may be going on for a while because I'm sure there's a solution out there. There's there's got to be. 
what it could be, no idea, because you really are talking about things that are very hard to track and to quantify. So I think the AI would be easier if you just establish the databases that could be fed into AI. And then whatever whoever is on that list gets compensated for a portion of the, you know, well, whatever is useful. Well, you could start out. One one thing that makes this a little easier is you know that everything an AI generates is based on something. Right. So every time you generate, every time uh, 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 you have an AI generated product, you have to compensate someone. So presumably, if it's someone, you don't care who it is, you might as well be honest and say, oh, it was that guy. That's who we copied. You know, so so having the um, imperative to compensate someone simplifies it somewhat. It's true. You could simple. You could. You could compensate the wrong guy, but that's what I was just I thinking. The wrong somebody. guy. Yeah. 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 Well, what I what I mean by that is if you establish a pool. For example, sci-fi AI pool, right? Who are the science fiction authors that are like, for example, in, in uh scientific literature, since I'm in the science field, uh in the scientific literature, you go to ResearchGate or PubMed or whatever, you have a list of highly cited authors, right? So similar kind of perspective, you create a database of the highest cited authors of, you know, uh, works in science fiction, create that pool. These are the people whose information will be used to generate AI content for sci-fi series. And you got the drama, you got the criminal, you got whatever. The, you, know, you know, you have your different pools and you have individuals that get compensated if if somebody chooses to use AI generated content for TV shows, streaming, movies, whatever, right? Uh, if you don't, right, you just hire the one schmuck or the three schmucks that will mm-hmm. write the script for you, right? Then you just pay them, right? Or if you want yeah, AI assist, yeah, I you, mean, you pay the you pay the other people that's work that you use, and then you have the ability, uh, you know, or supposedly you would be given the ability, like your works would be. It's like Michael, would you want to be part of this pool? You get compensated. You know, whatever it is, whatever the compensation rate is, this is how much you can get as a residual check over time, yada, yada, yada. Would you consent to have all your works be part of this pool? And you can say, presumably, yes or no, right? It's like, you, you, you know, I, that. you could do that. But, you know, science fiction writers are notoriously um, accepting of, of newbies. And so, you know, so to say that, you know, there's this, it, it, it becomes an exclusive list, you know, and, and the barriers to entry are completely different than they are in academia. So, sure. so, you know, let's say some, some, some Ron Moore comes along straight out of college and says, you know, I, I have a, have a, you know, a, a great story. You can't say the other science fiction writers wouldn't say, yeah, yeah, yeah go, go away. We already have our list. We're all getting compensated. It's um, it kind of runs contrary to, to uh, to our our philosophy. And by the way, it runs contrary to Star Trek, right? I mean, you know, infinite <laughs> infinite diversity and infinite combinations. We're very yeah. <laughs> we're the opposite of exclusive, right? You're right. I could I could see that as the the drawback to a system like that because then you have 
someone fresh out of school that already slides right into the residual pool and didn't didn't put in their time, which yeah. I get what you're saying in regards to uh, not not being so inclusive that the new guys are shunned away. But it's kind of like, right. you know, we, we've we've got this thing. We've been doing it for all these years. We negotiated this. And now I'm going to pretend like I'm one of those people that has a solution because everyone does. We we all know how to end the strike, right? So yeah, to- totally right. Of course. <laughs> I, I've got what are you it. Talking about? Got, who, do you, Michael, do you know who I need to talk to about resolving this writer strike? Because I, I got it right here. So all you do, it's simple. All you have to do is once once the billionaires decide that the writers are worth getting a little more money, once they kind of bring themselves off of their their yachts and their helicopters and say, OK, well, we can we can kick a little more over. Um, has that idea been entertained that, you know, it's it's going to be a nightmare to try to quantify every click of a stream or any book that gets fed into the system. So here's your, here's the base pay you get. And here's like a a flat residual. Some of you might get more than what you would have. Some may get less, but you know, let's try to be all on the same page here and help ourselves out and have a solution here that at least you can live with, you know, like I, I could live with a new guy coming in and sliding right into something like that. You know, I'm, I'm not so selfish that I would want to make sure it's kind of like with student loans. You know, I paid all mine. You shouldn't have to get yours compensated or, or not, to, which I think that is the most asinine uh, thought behind yeah. that is we don't want you to get your student loans forgiven because someone else had to go and, and, and do their such a such a selfish not like nothing sums up America than a phrase like that. So what are your thoughts? And if, if you're able to tell us if you're in the know, has, has something like that been floated of like a, a flat base salary and then a flat base uh, residual? It, it, um, it'd be tough because most, most writers are freelancers, even staff writers spend most of their lives as freelancers, you know? So I'm, uh, you know, I, I would say I was a showrunner and, uh, now I'm a freelancer and I'm going to go to my friend who I hired when I was a showrunner and say, Hey, you know, cut me a break. Give me a, give me a, give me a, an opening. And I, and I, I write a script for him. And then the next year I'm a showrunner again. And, you know, but on and off, most even staff writers are, are freelancers. So it's hard to, it's hard to say, you know, here's a salary. Um, And if they did, it would be so very low because they'd be including so many people that who might not be productive. There'd be a disincentive to be more productive. I, I, it's, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. Um, But uh, you know, there, there has been, a system. It's just a question, I think, of adapting it. You know, we had a system whereby you, there are rates that you get. You know, when you write a, um, a story 
for a starch or for any network program, you get a certain amount. It's set in stone. And when you get, um, and when you write a script based on that story, you get a certain amount set in stone. And when someone comes along and, and tinkers with your work, they get a certain amount set in stone. So there are, you know, there are set amounts. You just have to, um, find a way to apply them to today's, uh, delivery systems, content delivery systems. I, I am looking forward to seeing how this resolves because it's just, it's a, I'll be laying awake at night thinking, okay, if I was them, what would be, what would be the, the technical solution to this? Because it is a technical one. You're, you're dealing with streaming and AI and how do you incorporate that? Uh, I'm sure they've hopefully have tech people at the table to offer in how do we how do we do this yeah. with the the numbers and the 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 binaries and the the digits and the IP addresses and who clicks on what and and all I of that think, and also yeah. the biggest the biggest people or the biggest uh entities that want this resolved are the states because you know California Georgia they're losing billions oh billions. yeah and, and New York in New York too, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's, a bi it's billions of dollars a day uh, of just of just lost revenue for yeah, yeah. everybody. Well, yes, they're they're you know they still have inventory. The the um, networks and the and the uh, streaming services they still have inventory, um, but that won't last forever. Right. Well, no, but like the the states want those tax dollars. Yes, yeah. they do for right. for right. booking locations for the you know the business fees yeah. and all that stuff. They they want all that revenue. They're losing billions of dollars a day because of it. So they want that result. Anyways, going back to Star Trek here for a sec. Uh, oh, that's right. But, you were talking about Star Trek. I yeah, but but tying <laughs> in AI, um, has there actually um. More more questions, right? Number one is, do you know a lot of the Star Trek other Star Trek authors, and do you guys have your own like little click uh, when you're writing stories? And then uh, number two, has anybody written? I I can't put my finger on it. Has anybody written uh, a, a story with like a helpful AI as opposed to one that wants to destroy the universe? <laughs> <laughs> well, so so in answer to your question, yes, I I, I have the great good fortune of being friends with. Lots of the lots of the people you'd you'd um, uh, identify as as the most prolific Star Trek authors and and screenwriters as well. So yeah, I'm I'm um, uh, you've got I'm the Rolodex. Them. They're all they're all great people and and excellent writers and and we have a great time together. Um, you know, we see each other at conventions. We help each other promote books okay. and uh um it's one you know that's something that science fiction is 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 um not quite unique in but um but is uh almost unique we'll say is that there's a community it's, right it's more federation community of of uh of um fans there's a community of of writers and um and it's 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 a privilege. It's a real privilege to be part of that community. Either of those communities, actually, 
Um, so yeah, I know, I know a lot of those, those galoots. <laughs> the, the, uh, um, uh, and I think they'd admit to knowing me too. Um, maybe uh, right. Slip them a 20. The other part of, uh, of that quote, what was the other part of the question? The, the question is, has, has anybody written a story that has a helpful AI, oh, right. not, not, not just one that wants to destroy the universe? Or are all think, all sentient life? You know, you, you you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, yeah, computer but goes think, out of control. I think there's not a, there's no story that I know of about that, but I think that's an assumption in almost every story that that comes out now. You know, we're no longer quite so so um, you know allergic to to you know computers we're not we're not as scared of computers maybe we should be but we're not and um and uh um you know i think i think it's a subtext in in very many stories that the computer is a helpful tool uh we just don't you know it's just that that's not the main thrust of the story but it's an assumption right and i was i was just curious now that you know all this a lot, you know, a lot of this strike is based on AI and, you know, it's been, it's been more prominent over the years and a lot of, uh, you know, people spell doom and gloom, right? Because of our wonderful science fiction authors that talk about doom and gloom with AIs taking over, you know, the matrix and whatnot. But, it, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you know, outside of maybe something like Halo where you have an AI implant where it helps you target logs or something, or it helps you with, uh, logical calculations that there aren't very many stories where you have an AI as an assist to trying to solve a lot of your problems. It's more like right. humans well, are being threatened. You, um, I, I just thought of this uh, quote, this line I've read from James Cameron. This is recent. I'm getting some of the wording, right? The wording, uh, incorrect, I'm sure, but, uh, it was something like, I warned all of you about this in 1984 and you didn't listen. <laughs> that was you know, when Terminator. You, I, 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 I am not. Uh, listen, we're we're society's going in an AI direction, no matter what the three of us do or don't do. Right? Yep. It's it's going to happen. Hey, 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 I can pull the plug on AI because I I can. Pull we can. <laughs> no. We should talk, we should talk because there's a, I think I think there's a legitimate problem. You know, um, obviously, there's a lot of things that AI can do to help us. There's, you know, from a medical standpoint, um, from a resource uh, uh, generation and deployment standpoint, there are lots of things that AI can do to help us. But ultimately, my concern is this. So there is an incentive, an economic incentive for sure, right, to develop more and more sophisticated systems. Presumably, we will stop or be stopped from creating a system that's more powerful than what we can control. We, meaning, you know, responsible society, responsible government, and so on like that. But not everyone on earth is responsible in that way. So let's say you have a terrorist organization that has access to technology, and we know that there are some that do, and they take that computer that's just about as smart as we are, and they use it to create a computer that's smarter than we are. 
that has no particular, um, no particular. Uh, it's not. It's not beholden to Isaac Asimov's Isaac Asimov's laws of robotics, and it doesn't really care what happens to us, right? That's what scares me, and I think it's very, very possible and even likely that that'll happen. Well, I'm, so I'm that's glad, my concern. I'm glad we have that episode of uh, Star Trek where James T. Kirk asked asked the robot to find the last digit of pi, and then <laughs> that's all we have to do. Well, to, to shut them down. That's that's I all we guess. Have. I guess that sounds <laughs> good. I, I now I can sleep at night. <laughs> we can um, all sleep unless now. unless it becomes smart, it just replies with. There is no last digit of pi. Next question. Oh, yeah. oh man. Oh, 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 oh. Now I'm not sleeping again. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, I want to say thank you so much for taking out time in your day to join us and talk about the novels, comics, crossovers, and just everything, all of your work that you've done. Is there is there anything that you have coming up that you want to talk about, uh, mention, promote, uh, to get, make sure we all know about? Yeah, there are a few things. Um, okay. One is, and uh, uh, my colleague, you know, I'm part of a group called Crazy Eight Press, um, which um, uh, we founded about 12 years ago. Um, and um, it's uh, it's where we meaning the, the 10 writers that are involved in Crazy 8, um, uh, express our most um, uh, authentic visions, right? So if I want to write a book about a 21st century Aztec empire noir murder mystery, I can do it through Crazy 8 Press. I don't have to go to a traditional publisher. And I did, by the way, with that. And uh, to a friend who is an editor at one of the publishing houses, and she said, I love that idea. That's what a great idea. I can't buy that idea. <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, taking that to, a, to a, a bookstore buyer and saying, yeah, it's a 21st century Aztec Empire noir murder mystery. You know, the guy's head would explode. So, so at Crazy 8, we don't need to generate the numbers that a traditional publishing house needs to generate. And we can... We can publish things that that we want to we that we want to write desperately want to write, and presumably our readers will will we hope desperately want to read. Um, so that's crazy eight. So right now we have uh, an anthology being kickstarted. It's an anthology of holiday uh, science fiction and fantasy stories um, uh, called. Um, uh, Grandma got kidnapped by aliens and other stories and other holidays gone wrong, I think. Right. So so please <laughs> look that up. Grandma got kidnapped by aliens. It's a Kickstarter campaign. It's about halfway through and it can use some help. Um, so uh, that's that's one thing I'd like to plug. Um, my story in there is about an Aztec priest who uh, has just. Um, who has just gone through a, a sacrifice cycle for for one of the ho holidays uh, to to appease the rain god, and is told that yeah yeah no that didn't work we're going to try the harvest gods now and he looks around and he goes who's left to sacrifice I went through like 
200 people just now. My, you know, I can't even move my hands. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's how the story, that's how that wow. story begins. So they're not all Judeo Christian holiday stories. Um, uh, another thing I'd like to, to mention is, uh, our phenomenons series. Um, phenomenons is, um, uh, a superhero anthology. Uh, we've put out two volumes now and we're going to put out a third soon. Uh, we're going to kickstart a third in February. Um, and, uh, it's, a, it's a world where, uh, we never got over the, um, financial crisis of 2008. And, oh. uh, people, people are hurting and they need superheroes more than, more than, uh, than perhaps than you and I. And, um, uh, it's, it's a really refreshing, interesting, group of superheroes that that have been uh that we've designed uh we have some terrific writers including uh, jeff thorne who uh, who writes green lantern for dc and um dan hernandez who most recently uh collaborated with his uh, partner on the um teenage mutant ninja turtle movie um so we have some terrific writers um we have uh, uh nebula and Hugo award uh, uh nominees um, the, here, the, the superheroes themselves are as familiar as, you know, we have a speedster, uh, written by Paul Kupperberg, uh, who's written a million comic books and, uh, and, and novels. Um, and, uh, so he's a speedster. He's a different kind of speedster. Uh, and then we have completely original, crazy characters like Lipstick Lily. Lipstick Lily fights crime with an array of specialty lipsticks. Hmm. Okay. So it's a okay. really cool, really cool anthology. And, um, and if you haven't, uh, seen the first two volumes, you should get those on, on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Um, and, and look for the Kickstarter in February. And the, the third thing that, that I should mention is something called empty space. Um, a couple of years ago, I kickstarted a, um, graphic novel called Empty Space about a um, Star Trek, vaguely Star Trek-like uh, situation uh, where there's a Federation type type organization, but um, its its um, ships are far flung, and um, there's a problem in that people die and they can't easily be replaced. They don't just pop into a a nearby star base and, uh, and, you know, get some more crew. Um, and they don't have room to, to, um, come up with, uh, a robot or, uh, robot, uh, uh, replacements. So what they do is they have, they've developed a technology where they can reanimate their crew just once and only for about a year before they start to go berserk. Um, and so these are called empties because they're kind of empty of emotion. And um, our, uh, our, our um, protagonist wakes up as an empty in, uh, in a, an era that he's not familiar with and uh, on a ship that kind of looks like his. And uh, he's been, we'll call it asleep for a while. Um, and it's his reintroduction into the universe that, uh, that becomes the meat of um of the stories. So that's empty space. And so a couple of years ago, I did the, the graphic novel 
And pretty soon I'm going to be kickstarting the um, prose um, sequel. So it's going to be a prose novel that's a sequel to a graphic novel. I don't, I've never done that before. I don't know what that'll be like, but, but we're going to give it a shot. Well, something new always sounds like fun. Well, that's great. We should definitely take a, I'm sorry, what's that for us? Oh, I thought you were saying. I think there's like a tagline. There's like a tagline in there. Like, uh, you know, crazy a publishing come, come spend time with the 10 of us. And <laughs> <laughs> time with the what? With the 10 of us, right? Oh, Cause you mentioned there are 10 us. people. Well, you know, yeah. when we started out, there were only six. <laughs> well, that's like the big 10 has 12 teams and the big 12 yeah, has 10 right. teams or right, right. You know, yeah, all yeah, that right. stuff. It's, it's like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense anymore. Yeah. Well, that's the crazy part, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a great way to, to turn that right back around. I can tell you're a writer. That was excellent. Well, thanks again so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We should do this again sometime. Hopefully this writer strike ends at some point so you can maybe get back into doing some work, some projects. So appreciate it. Appreciate everyone for watching and listening to Beyond Trek podcast. And as always, live long and prosper. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.